So what have you guys been eating? Thanks for asking. Despite it being 3 p.m., I've only just had breakfast, but I had some cinnamon raisin toast, and boy, was it fine. Moving on. Jackson, have you eaten anything? Uh, today, I have eaten. I had blueberry pancakes this morning, and then for lunch, I had a sandwich. What was on it? Oh, that's such a good question. I you pur- don't remember? I purchased it, so I didn't make it, and it just like had green stuff. So I was like, I'd eat that. Do you mean like uh, lettuce? Yeah, that was that was def- that was definitely some of it, and it had like maybe pickles on it. Maybe you're the one who ate it. I think if anyone should know, it's it was, you. It was caprese esque in origin. I'd say. <laughs> uh, all right, Parth, let's get this over uh, with. I had a Spanish omelet. My mommy made me. Poor K. See what I did there? Wow, you're so multicultural. <laughs> yeah, I went. I got up to Spanish three. We we just gained three listeners in Spain. Yeah, we're really expanding our audience. Mucho gusto. Um, uh, wait, Trent. See, it, 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 if what, when did you eat breakfast? And I'll I'll stop trying to talk in Spanish. Um, about an hour ago. Why? It's lunch. That's no yeah. longer breakfast. No, no, no. See, Parth, if the, your first meal of the day, no matter what, is breakfast. Like, uh, I wake up at, like, noon when my the rest, the remainder of my family is already eating lunch. But it, it'd be wrong to just wake up and eat, like, a bologna sandwich. So I start with breakfast food, and then from that point, you can have lunch. But you can't just jump. You can't just dive straight into the deep end of lunch. Breakfast food is easily the most overrated. Uh, I uh, would like food. to cordially disagree. Parth, break I would, the tie. I would also disagree. I would disagree with that. Oof. I would rather eat dinner for breakfast than breakfast for dinner. You oh, take, you take that's, that to the Jackson, back. that's blasphemy. Absolutely not. You want to eat like meatloaf at like 9 a.m.? Well, I would not eat meatloaf uh, ever, but I would eat ravioli anytime. Are you saying I, just ravioli, or is that just an example of something that, that appeals that, to that's you? That's just an example of something that appeals to my very core. Jackson, I, I, I just can't be bothered to hear more of this. We're what's just, your, we're, what's we're your gonna, beef? What's your beef with meatloaf? Pun intended. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I've, I've never had meatloaf, so I should thought, not get. Well, you have because have you ever had a meatball? Because a meatball is just a small. It's just like a segment of a meatloaf. Wait, is that what meatloaf is? is? That's true. It yeah, like a meatloaf is just like a big like pile of meat. Meatloaf, and then, I've never actually know what a meatloaf looks was. So weird though. Yeah, it's like any other beef product. Wait, by like, this metric, is a burger like a slice yes. of meatloaf? No, you're lying. Yes, be all beef products are just like they're derived from the same place. It just piles cow, of meat in different cow, shapes. Is cow, the same place. Well, I feel like cow's the origin. Interesting. Um, have we exhausted this topic enough? Yeah, I'm exhausted. On to the show! Welcome to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. I'm Parth Marate. I'm Trent Algar, co-host of Craft Services. And I'm Jackson Clark, friend of Parth Marate and Trent Elgare. 
aforementioned co-hosts. Each week we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week we've got a special two-part episode. We were able to get in contact with the production designer and art director for our movie today, Defy Bloods. Um, so I'm going to start off by reading off our IMDb synopsis of the movie. Parth, tell us uh, the basic plot of the movie in like two sentences. How does that sound? Uh, I can tell it to you in one. Huh? <gasps> Four African-American vets battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. You summed it up well. Thank you. Was that in your own words, or was that from IMDb.com? Um, I won't comment, but I will say that it was from IMDb. Well, that was a comment, but moving on. Did, I don't know what you're talking did about. you guys know prior to watching this about the gold fortune aspect? Well, I saw the trailer. If oh, that's I, I, I didn't see the trailer. I didn't know that was going to happen. So, what were you expecting? I, I was. Ex- I I knew that it was about like retrieving their fallen friends' remains. I, I didn't know about the gold. I feel like that's more of a subplot than the gold. Yeah, truly. We should get into the production history. Yeah, Parth, tell us about the production history. Uh, well, originally this was. A script. It was a spec script by Danny Bilson and Paul De Bimio. Um It was called The Last Tour, um, and Oliver Stone was supposed to direct. And then after he dropped out in 2016, and Spike Lee and Kevin Wilmot uh, performed a rewrite after they finished their work on Black Klansmen and changed it so that it was African Americans um, in the script. At certain at a some at some point it was supposed to be Samuel L. Jackson, Giancarlo Esposito, Don Cheadle, and John David Washington uh, in the lead roles, um, but all of them were had conflicting schedules, so they were they had to pass. Um, so we were instead we were left with Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo, and uh, Jonathan Majors, um, which I feel like. I was happy with what we got. So it was uh, had a budget of 35 to $45 million, and we have no idea uh, how much money this would make because this was a movie released on Netflix. Um, was that the original plan, or was this just... Was that improvised due to lack of theaters? No, it, that, so that was the original plan. Uh, it was going to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival because I'm pretty sure they're trying to go for Oscars for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um and for that to happen, you have to have had it in some sort of scheduled theatrical window. So, like, that's what they did with Roma and the Irishman and Marriage Story. Are, are they going to do, like, online versions of, I don't know, like, Cannes and uh, all the other major qualifying film festivals? Yeah. I don't know. Are they? Yeah, I'm pretty sure South by Southwest has already. Oh, wow. But I'm not sure about that. Pretty sure yeah, can you buy tickets and they'll just like send you a link? That sounds so dangerous because I would imagine those would get passed around. Or so someone could just screen record. But can can you do like a limited time file that can't be like exploited and copied? No. I mean, if there's a file, you can find a way to record it. That's Computers 101. Uh, just after a quick Google search, the South by Southwest movies, are they had them premiere on Amazon Prime Video. 
at the time of the festival. Good shout out to Amazon. They really need your small business at times like these. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff Bezos says, no problem, Parth. That was my Jeff Bezos impression, everyone. That was a really good Jeff Bezos impression. Yeah, it's accurate. So we were able to secure an interview with the production designer, Wynn Thomas, who's been Spike Lee's longtime production designer going all the way back to his first movie. Um, and so we're going to cut right to that interview. And then for the next inter- for our second interview, you can tune into our second episode. So enjoy our interview with Wynn Thomas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with the legendary Wynn Thomas. He's a production designer who's worked on many films, such as Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, A Beautiful Mind, and our film today, De Five Bloods. We're super lucky and excited to talk with him today. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Um, so we just wanted to start with how you got involved with film. Uh, my beginnings were in the theater as a set designer in the theater, and um, I got tired of being poor. So uh, I decided to uh, pursue some movie work. And what happened was it took me a long time to kind of break in because a lot of people didn't want to hire me. Uh, So the short version of the story is is that I volunteered for my very first film, which was The Cotton Club. uh, And the designer decided to take a chance and hire me as a, as a, uh, a volunteer. Uh, And then my first day there, after four hours of being there as a volunteer, I ended up getting the very last job in the art department. And uh, I got hired for two weeks, and that two weeks turned into six months. And that's how I got my first film. So I was working for uh, a very famous production designer named Richard Silbert. And the movie was The Cotton Club, and it was being directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, wow working big (laughs) i was building models of all the sets for that film and i would take them down the hall and give them to francis and he would have a full he would always francis is always interested in talking to people and i would have these full-on conversations with francis for coppola so that was my first job and then after that happened um the barriers kind of came down very quickly because i had this very famous designer who would call up the people i was trying to get work with and give me a good recommendation and the barriers all kind of came down and my career just blossomed and took off. Um, so just for our listeners at home, can you describe the, like the textbook definition of what a production designer does on a day-to-day basis? Well, a production designer is responsible for the look of a movie. We are responsible for providing these sort of conceptual framework uh, for in which the movie is going to take place in. And we do that by uh, having conversations with the director and then working with every aspect of the production that's visual because we're providing the visual framework for which everybody's going to be working in. And I think sometimes the simplest de- definition that I use is that the production designer is the person who takes the writer's words and turns them into concrete visual images. Nobody else in the film does that. The production designer really is the only person that does that. So you mentioned using models. Um, Is that your primary form of like uh, imagining a scene or do you sketch or how else do you put your mind on the page? Well, I think a production designer has to have a lot of different skills. 
we have to be able to draw. Um, we have to be able to do technical architectural drawings. Uh, we also sometimes need to do um, uh, physical models. There's something called 3D modeling now, which happens in various computer programming, and I don't quite know how to do that, but all my assistants do. Uh, and uh, so you have to have a lot of different artistic skills in order to do this job. You have to have a real strong sense of color. You have to have a sense of history um, because we are utilizing all of these skills to help uh, tell the story on every film that we do. Um, so then you you said that the production designer is kind of the first person that takes the text and translates it to a visual. Um, so then what communication do you have with a DP or something or a director of photography or something like that? Yes. Well, clearly it is a collaboration process. I often like to think of the co collaboration the process in terms of describing it in visual terms is kind of like a triangle with the director at the top and then the production designer and the cinematographer occupying the other corners of that triangle. And depending on who the job, what the job is and who that cinematographer is will depend on what the extent of will define the extent of that collaboration but generally what happens on most films is that the dp doesn't come on until much later in the process so very often um, many of the decisions or most of the decisions will be made between myself and the uh, director the locations department becomes a very important part of the process uh, at the in the very beginning of the film, and, and I think what people don't realize is that the locations department is part of the art department during the first weeks of pre-production. They work with me to uh, begin to shape the look of the movie, and they're in, I don't know how it is on other people's movies, but on my movies, they're talking to the locations department is talking to me. They don't really talk to the director. I'm the only person talking to director about the visual look of the film, not the uh, locations department. So you mentioned that like an artistic uh, foundation is like the backbone of a good production designer. Did you have any, have you been artistic like since you were very young or was this just something you were thrown into and had to figure out as you went? Uh, I was very lucky. I got, the bug hit me very early uh, as a teenager uh, I saw a movie called uh, Summer and Smoke, which is based on a Tennessee Williams play and Lawrence Harvey and Geraldine Page in it. And for some reason, it really spoke to me. It really kind of changed my life. I was all 13 or 14 when I saw this film. And I, um, what that did was open the door to theater for me. And I became a real theater geek and um, uh, really kind of just sort of uh, began to live in that world. And I started working, I'm from Philadelphia, and I started working at an amateur theater company in Philadelphia as a teenager uh, and really worked there really every day of my teenage life from the age of 15 to the age of 18. And this theater company was doing very unusual stuff. They were doing Duramonts and, and Gunter Grass and Brotolf Brett. And so I spent my time there um, uh, uh, acting in plays and uh, painting scenery and designing sets and stage managing shows. At the same time, I was a uh, art major in high school. And so when I decided to go to college, I wanted to combine my love of art with my love of theater. 
and I decided to become a set designer. So I worked, <clears throat> I went to Boston University and studied uh, theater design. And then I came out and when I came out from school, I worked in the theater for a good solid 10 years before I transferred into movies. Most recently, of course, we're talking about The Five Bloods, and you've had a working relationship with Spike Lee for a very long, since his first movie. Um, and so we were wondering what type of relationship you have with really any, well, you've said like the communication line is like a triangle, but um, like what type of relationship do you have with the director and Spike Lee in specific? Well, you know, I've been, <clears throat> I met Spike early on in my career. I actually met him before he started directing. Um, um, the, the quick version of that story is, is that I was working, I was art directing a movie called Beat Street, which was a breakdance film a long time ago. And uh, Spike came in to interview for the assistant to the director job, which is the coffee fetching job. And he stopped by the art department because uh, there was a woman that uh, our PA was a woman that he had gone to college with. And when he stopped in, he saw me and he said, Oh, wow. I didn't even know there were any black people doing this. And I said, well, yeah, I'm doing it. And so as a result of that, we stayed in touch. And then, uh, at that point in Spike's career, he was, he was where he was very wise is that he started gathering people as he would meet them. And, and about a year later, we made a movie called Messengers. We started working on a film called Messenger, which was the story of a bicycle messenger whose uh, mother has, and it's the bicycle messenger and his family, the mother has died. Uh, a year later, the father brings home uh, a woman that he wants to marry. And this script was based on Spike Lee's family. So we, um, we started working on this film. We had about two weeks prep time. Nobody was getting paid any money. And the film was being produced by a uh, a guy who owned a bicycle messenger shop, ironically. Unfortunately, we the Friday before we were supposed to start shooting a film, this guy pulls out all his money. And the movie collapsed. And we were all devastated, but Spike in particular was really devastated by this. He was very, very disappointed. And the film, unfortunately, was a very big film and had lots of actors in it. And it required a bit of a budget in order to get it made. So we folded. And I, but I think the thing that was significant about that film, which is why I'm telling the story, the story today, is that it really planted the seed in Spike's head that he had to produce his own films. Uh, he spent the rest of the year trying to raise money to produce this film, again, which was called Messenger. Couldn't raise the money. And then... Um, he said, well, look, you know, I have this other script. It's a smaller film. It has only four actors in it. I'm going to borrow the money from my grandmother. And I want to, let's try and let's make this movie. And that movie was She's Gotta Have It. She's Gotta Have It was our first film that we did together. The film was produced for $21,000 that he borrowed from his grandmother. And, oh, my. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. When you yeah, look it's at unheard the, of. I mean, that you for that amount of money. And especially when you look at the film, because the movie looks sensational. Ernest Dickerson was the cinematographer on it. And it was the beginning of that film was the beginning of what I call the Spike Lee family. Because after the success of that film, the family, which included uh, his cinematographer, Ernest Dickerson, Robbie Reed, his casting designer, 
casting director, and then Ruth Carter as costume designer. And there was a gentleman named Monty Ross who was there. That group went on to produce essentially the next 10 Spike Lee films. Um, and the great thing about uh, my relationship with Spike is that it's been a fantastic artistic collaboration. We have a very, we clearly we have a very strong, um, he, I think um, we have a very similar uh, sensibility when it comes to approaching material. And therefore, our, our collaborations have been easy collaborations. And they've also been, um, uh, you know, I think the mythology in the business is that the director does everything. And that's a mythology that I really wish that we would get rid of because it really is a team of people who come together working with the, working with the direct, director to service his or her vision. That's what happens. And each person is bringing a different something to the product to the to the to the product and a good director will put surround himself with a team that is supporting his voice and that's what spike did in the very beginning years i have a question uh you explained how what the responsibilities of a production designer in pre-production but um what what would you say you're doing on set well, we're not really doing very much. You know, our, we're the advanced team. The art department and the production designer are the advanced team. And in a perfect world, when pre-production is working uh, well, essentially all the decisions are made in pre-production. So that by the time that you're doing a movie, you are essentially shooting and, and, and working within the framework and the decisions that have been made within in pre-production. That's what happens in a perfect world. Um, so what happens since the art department is the advanced team, what happens is, is that I will be there every time we're opening up a new set. And I usually stick around for half a day that first day, just to make sure, just to see how uh, they are establishing the set. So, so if there are any changes that are being made, um, I can be there to participate in whatever uh, those changes are and to be there to advise because uh, sometimes you know they want to come in they want to change your furniture they want to change something uh, but and I want to be there to make sure that I'm protecting the integrity of my set um, so um, so usually I'm there for about a half day I kind of wait till they establish that wide shot once they've established that wide shot that I can see uh, I could be there to assist in the if there's any changes that have to be made. And then once that's done, I leave the set and I go on to whatever set we're prepping for the next day shoot. Um, so to get more specific about The Five Bloods, um, I, I really like the movie a lot. And um, I thought it was a really beautiful looking movie. And I was wondering how much of the film was shot on location versus what was shot on, on a set and how you make those decisions. Right, right. Well, uh, Five Bloods was shot in Thailand, and we also shot in uh, Vietnam as well. So the entire film was essentially built on locations, in mostly in, we were, the company was in a city called Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is about, seven or eight hours north of Bangkok. 
And then most of the locations, most of the jungle locations that we found were either on the perimeter of Chiang Mai, because Chiang Mai is a city, or um, three hours away. So we, uh, so, um, you know, there was extensive scouting of jungles throughout the jungles of, of, of Thailand. The final set of the film where the movie, movie takes place is, uh, as you know, is a ruin. It's, it's based on the Misan ruins, which are in central Vietnam. We could not shoot at the real ruins, obviously, because it's a World Heritage Site. So I had to build the, that my version of the Misan Temple in a jungle uh, from scratch. So everything that you see, all those structures that you see were built by the Thai art department, but designed by myself and, you know, built uh, by the construction and paint crew and sculptors that were there in Thailand. Uh, so those, you know, it's all wood and styrofoam and uh, beautifully sculpted by the local crews and beautifully painted and some great work by the local Thai uh, film community. So are you, you mentioned how you designed the sets like on a larger scale, like the, like, like the walls and structures and such, but are you worrying about like individual props as well? Okay. Or smaller items like that? Yes. The production designer is responsible for everything visual that you see in a film. So that means all those departments Everything works under my department, starting with the locations. Uh, obviously, my art director and my set director, decorator are key members of my team. But everything visual, from props to all the graphics, um, uh, work. I work very closely with the costume designer to coordinate uh, how uh, the costumes are going to work within the look of the film. And generally what happens is, again, um, just so you're clear, the production designer is providing the conceptual framework in which everyone is working in. So it's not, sometimes my process is to actually write down a concept that I've, that I've, which that the director has approved. And I will share that concept with everyone working on the film. And the idea is that every department is working within that framework. But props is part of my department. So I see everything before we show it to Spike. I see everything and approve everything. All the graphics, graphics people, graphics designer, all the graphics are all under my department. I uh, am working very closely with the graphics designer. And, and everything is approved by me before we show it to the director. So everything visual, everything you see before the camera is turned on. So then a question that that brings up for me is um, now with films, it's very common for them to incorporate CG elements for like set extensions or just to make things more accurate. And so I'm wondering what kind of communication you have with the VFX team or is, is there a standard procedure or like how do you how do you operate with that again this this the relationship with the visual effect team is evolving over the years uh, but what used to happen and what still happens on some cases uh, is that 
the final image that the visual effects team will be doing will be generated in the art department. That was that used to happen all the time. We would do those sketches, those sketches would be done by us. But because that world has taken on its own life, so to speak, um, visual effects has, has started to articulate some of the final solutions within its own department. But again, what should be happening again in a perfect world is that the production designer is a, uh, uh, a large participant in the, that process and in those decisions. Um, when you are planning a, a a set design, are you considering like colors and themes or are you more focused on his historical accuracy, especially in reference to this film? Well, I think we are responsible for all those things. Um, you know, part of the job in the very beginning of the film for me is to go out and do extensive research. That's how my conversations begin with the director. I take all the research or much of the research that I have and my early conversations with the director are to sit down and talk to him. And we both look at all this visual material because I don't know how you talk about something visual without having visual aids. So my early discussions with the director, you know, for example, on Five Bloods, my early meetings with Spike were sitting down and looking at books from Vietnam or looking from images from Vietnam. And that is really where the conversation begins to occur about the approach that you want to take to the material. Okay. Because you're, you're looking at these visual aids and there's going to be images or photographs that the director is going to respond to. There's going to be stuff that I respond to. And so that those early conversations are uh, trying to set up a visual vocabulary with, to establish a visual vocabulary with the director. That's what we're trying to do. And then again, in terms of, uh, so for me, my, the next part of my process will be to begin to form a visual vocabulary for the film. And part of that visual vocabulary is to determine th the use of color. I mean, color completely falls under our domain. Uh, and then I will choose a color palette for the entire film. And again, share that information with everybody who's working on the movie. I share that information with the cinematographer. I share that information with the costume designer. So again, um, everything visual, uh, again, the production designer should be forming the conceptual approach to the movie. Part of that conceptual approach will be to determine locations and color and textures that you're going to be using. Sharing that information with the entire team and then everybody should be working within that, those um, within that framework to make the movie. And by doing that, it pulls the whole movie together as a whole. You're not looking at things that don't seem like they don't fit. Uh, another question we were going to ask is: um, obviously, this isn't like a this isn't a Marvel movie in terms of scale of production, but it it's certainly bigger than the $21,000 you were working with way back when. So does your process change uh, uh, depending upon the budget? Um, and if so, how? And if not, is yeah, just if you could no, go into no, that. No, my process doesn't change. Uh, I did a low-budget movie last year called The Sun is Also a Star, which is a lovely 
romantic drama amongst young people. That was a $5 million movie. But the same thought process is still at work. What you have is less money to deal with. So instead of spending money to solve a problem, you solve it by the types of locations that you choose. And in a situation, so you're making your choices uh, are, are limited on a lower budget of film, but this, the thought process and the approach to determining how the movie will look is still the same, whether you have $50,000 or whether or not you have 50 million. Uh, on a movie like uh, um, uh, Five Bloods, for example, um, you know, we I had a little bit more money to spend, uh, so I was able to build that. You know, those that ruin is. And you think about that, building ruins from scratch. I mean, it's enormous. Took months and months and months of time to build. Um, but then also some of the locations that we went into needed a great deal of work. You don't, you know, in Tien's apartment, for example, we found the, that apartment, but I had to come in. That apartment, if you remember from the film, is very red, right? Yeah. Red. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, again, part of the concept of this movie, this movie is about the, you know, the search for gold and who's going to get the gold, right? If you look at Tien's apartment very carefully the next time you see the film, it's filled with red, but it's also filled with gold. Because it says something about her character. And if you look at the ceiling, her ceiling is black. So I'm trying to say something about create a mood about her character through the use of scenery, through the use of production design. Now, this is not something that's going to hit the audience over its head. It's there to guide the audience on a journey. Because Tien's character, we don't quite know who she is. But if you look at the apartment, you can see that she likes gold. Um, the same thing happened in DeRoche's uh, office building, which we, unfortunately they didn't shoot enough wide stuff of it. But if you look at that very carefully, there's one or two wides in the film. Again, that office is filled with gold details because, again, he's interested in the gold. So there's something about it. So we don't know that the characters are interested in We don't know about the gold yet. But all these clues as to what's happening are being are in the background of the story. So it's part of what part of my job is to take this audience on a visual journey and and, and support the story from a subtextual point of view about what, what the overall theme of the film will be. And so you see that reflected in both those characters. And in both those locations, we had to come in and do extensive work from wallpapering to painting you know, bringing in all the furniture. None of that stuff was there, you know, mm -hmm. into two empty environments and fixed them up. So some of my favorite sets or set pieces from the film were like the river market and also the, uh, like the helicopter crash shootout. So is there ever a outdoor location that just like works just right? Or, or was there a lot of work to be done there as well? Yes, there was a lot of work. The crash site, the helicopter crash site, we see the movie, we see that location twice. Uh, in the contemporary scenes, that is the air, that same area, the same, that, loca that location was three hours away from Chiang Mai, okay? And so in the story, in the contemporary time in the story, 
that is where the guys find all the gold bars, okay? But it's also, when we do the flashbacks, it's also where, uh, where the helicopter crashed and where the plane is. So we shot the contemporary scenes first because I didn't need to change the physicality of the landscape for the, for the early sequences. When we go back to the flashbacks, we had to, the art department had to come in and put in thousands of, of palm trees in that space to make the topography of the space look very different. Okay, so literally, I mean, literally I had villages of local, the local, uh, we employed people from the local villages to come in and plant all these trees. I mean, it was crazy. There's literally hundreds of people there. Um, and then we also had to build the uh, plane. I mean, you know, you just, you know, the plane, the crashed plane, which is all broken up in pieces, was built from scratch. And then we had to, uh, we had a helicopter. Once the helicopter crashes, we had a helicopter that also needed some construction as well. So all of this stuff, which looks organic uh, to the time and the place, is actually scenery that's being built by the art department. Um, so uh, we just mentioned the helicopter crash, and obviously this movie jumps between two timelines. Um, and so we were wondering if for the the past sequences are shot, shot in a four by three aspect ratio and in 16 millimeters. So there was an obvious attempt made to make a visual difference. Um, so in terms of your production design, was that, were you simply trying to get as period accurate as possible or were there certain stylistic things that you put in place to kind of uh, make the difference in time period more distinct? I think those um, those were choices that, you know, to do it in a different aspect ratio was attempt to make it feel closer to footage, our, our sense memory of footage from the Vietnam War. You know, when we look at most, when you look back at the uh, news footage from that time period, it was in a particular kind of ratio. So the choice was made by Spike and the cinematographer to treat things that way. Um, it did not have an, and, you know, my location choices or the choices I had to make didn't change because of the aspect ratio. And and another question is, um, at least on Defy Bloods, it's uh, it seems like you prefer shooting on location versus in a like in a studio like a set would that would you say that's accurate or is it just how this project ended up working out again i think it's uh the the choices was to keep it in the to put it in environments that were organic to the story um I don't think we, none of us are opposed to building. I mean, you know, again, the, the ruins, a big set. It's just right. instead of putting it on a stage, you're building it in the jungle. I mean, yeah, you know, so, and again, but the audience doesn't know that. And I think it doesn't look like a piece of scenery, but I, I had no clue. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, the thing, I mean, again, these artists in Thai, Thailand are exquisite craftsmen and women. You could literally go up to that room, that, that set, and stand two inches from it, and you would have thought that you were looking at stone that had been sculpted and scarved 
hundreds of years ago. Um, that's how talented they are. So I just think that there wasn't a really an, an opportunity to, uh, there wasn't any reason to build something on a stage. Um, my question, do you ever make a decision in advance and then you're on set and something isn't clicking and then you have to improvise a solution? Or once you once you decide on something, do you just have to like to, to hope hope for the best? Well, and uh, again, in a perfect world, um, all of the questions <clears throat> should be being asked in pre-production. There's a reason you go on such extensive scouts with the director. You know, usually you go on a, your first scout is with the director. And sometimes the DP is on that scout very frequently. So a series of decisions are made and conversations are had. And then you return to all of the locations that you're going to be using with the entire crew, which, as you guys know, is the tech scout. And then all of the decisions and all of the conversations should be happening on that tech scout so that everybody is getting their questions answered uh, weeks before we go there to shoot. That's the whole goal. So, and again, in a perfect world, uh, all those decisions are made in advance. If you don't do that, the process can become very messy and uncomplicated. I know that it does happen on some movies, but usually what that means is there's something wrong at the top of the food chain. Someone's not doing their work or something's happening because usually you don't change your mind after uh, going through the process. We were just wondering how uh, quarantine has, are you still able to do your work and how has it changed your job description? And uh, yeah, how are you, how are you dealing with these new conditions? Well, I haven't, you know, I'm not working right now. I don't think a lot of people are working. I think the industry is trying to figure out how to come back. Uh, and I think it's going to be very complicated. As you know, movie making is a communal experience. And it's very, you know, the, the, the idea of trying to social distancing does not work. Uh, so I'm not sure how the powers that be are going to solve this issue. Um, it is also unfortunate because part of the joy of the process is to be working with all of these people. I mean, that's the great joy of it. So to put in some sort of restraints that are going to separate people, I'm not particularly looking forward to that. And I don't know how they're going to solve it, frankly. Um, I think we're all going to be signing um, forms that release the studio of liability issues. You know, that's what I think is going to happen. But uh, um, it is, it, it, you know, there's usually, I mean, on a, you know, generally, you know, as you probably know, on a regular sized movie, sometimes the shooting crew is up to 125 people. Right. <laughs> how do you socially assistant? I don't know. I don't know how you do it. You know, yeah. you have one actor on the screen and there's 50 people behind them. I don't know. You know, so. Um, well, this is, well, this will end up being our last question, but, um, so I'm a person of color, um, and, uh, you are as well. And, um, 
like you said, Spike Lee saw you and was like, wow, there's not, I didn't know that there were black people working on this. So we were wondering how being a person of color has affected the work that you do in the industry. Uh-huh. Uh, look, I think the world is a, a complex place and um, bias, uh, racial bias is still present in the business. And what's happening now with the current voices that are being heard is that it's drawing attention to this issue in a way that it hasn't been drawn to before. Uh, my hope is that, is that, um, my hope is that there will be some real concrete change uh, because of the sort of heated conversations that are happening today. Uh, so that's my hope. As a person of color, you know, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I was there by myself for many, many years. And I think the thing that is true and has been true for me over the trajectory of my career is that if you are good at what you're doing, if you have the skill set and you have the tools, and you're and you're good at what you do it's very hard to um it's very hard that it is your skill set that's going to serve you and is going to break down the barriers that exist okay so uh which means that over the course of my career i had to know what I was doing in order to break down the barriers, you know? And because I knew what I was doing, I broke down those barriers. What I just said is going to be true of every job that's available in the movie business. So I think it's very important for what, who, whoever you are and whatever you are choosing to do, that you do your best to become good at that particular job because the racial barriers or the biases that are going to be there, they're going to be there and you're going to have to figure out how to get over them. You know, I, I've had a pretty great career, but I haven't done all the kinds of movies that I would like to do. And I have to know that whenever there was a problem, and it's particularly if there was a racial problem or whatever the problem is, I'm going to look at that situation, identify what the problem is, identify what the barrier is, and I'm going to figure out a way to get over that hurdle, to get beyond that barrier. And that's what I had to do as an individual. And now we, as people, have to try and figure out how to do that as we move forward in our various communities. If you don't mind my asking, what movies like would you like to do? Well, moving forward that, that you feel like you haven't gotten the opportunity to thus far, just yeah. out of curiosity. Where is my James Bond movie? Good, good question. <laughs> where Where is my uh, uh, 19th century English upper class drama? Period film. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm saying. I mean, this is ridiculous that I I am not doing more of those films, you know? I have the skill set. I, as you can look at the resume, I've done a wide variety of movies, but For sure. I haven't done, uh, you know, I keep saying, you know, I read Shakespeare all the time. Why aren't I designing those kinds of movies? You know, you don't, just because you're born white 
and you're British doesn't mean that you uh, inherently more talented or exactly right. qualified exactly. or like Hamlet any more than you do. That's exactly right. I mean, so it's very interesting what happens here. I'll, the example that I give is there was a series a couple of years ago on TV, and there's probably a more recent example of this where it was about John Adams and so and so. And I remember, I think it was Tom Hanks's company that was producing it or something. And I remember having a meeting with an executive about that and about why. And the thing is, this is a story about an American. And they went to England to get the production team. I mean, that's crazy. And that's a bias. Right. You know I mean? It's like the white British designer knows more about our history than we do. Of course, that's, that's an absurd thing. It's, it's, it's absurd. Because that person has to, would have to do, if I had gotten that job, I would still have to do the research. I would still have to do all the reading that was necessary. I would still have to have this exact same process that that white British designer brings to the material. And so this is true. And this, is, this has been a huge stumbling block for many people of color. We have the, 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 the business is very comfortable putting the black talent in a black box and saying that they can only do this kind of work. Well, this is a travesty and it's a tragedy. Uh, and, you know, I'll give you an example. Ruth Carter was a costume designer, three-time Academy Award nominee, finally won her award for Black Panther. 90% of the films that she has done have been films about black folks. She is very capable of doing films. She should be doing Downton Abbey. Right. I should be doing Downton Abbey. It's kind of like getting tap, typecast as an actor. That's except exactly. you're you're forced into yeah. you're kind of forced into making a specific type of movie. That's right. Just cause. Yes, exactly right. So this affects all groups: uh, Asians, Indian American Indians, Native Americans, Latino people. I mean, it's a tra- it's a tragedy. So my hope is that with the conversation that's happening because of the Black Lives Matter movement right now, that some of these biases will be addressed. But addressing these issues is extremely difficult because people cannot see that they have these issues and they're just not aware of them. So. Well, Thank you so much. That was a really great in-depth answer. Um, Trent, you got any questions? I, I think that just about wraps it up. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate your time. All right. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time with us. And that was Wynn Thomas. And you can see his latest uh, movie, Defy Bloods, on Netflix. It released on Netflix last week. Thank you. All right. That was a great interview with production designer Wynn Thomas. We thank him again for giving us his time. Uh, To hear our next interview with art director Jeremy Woosley turn into next installment of Craft Services, The Five Bloods Part 2.